Hey people, welcome to Accidental Gods, to the podcast where we believe that another world is still possible and that if we all work together, there is time to create that future that we would be proud to leave to the generations that come after us. I'm Manda Scott, your host in this journey into possibility, and this week's guest is one of the new generation of super thinkers who have the capacity individually and collectively, I believe, to bring into being that better future our hearts know is possible. Gaia Harrington is Dutch. She received her first master's degree in econometrics from the Liberal University of Amsterdam and her second master's degree in sustainability from Harvard University. In between, she worked in banking for the Dutch government as a regulator and then back to banking in the US where she now lives. She's a member of the Transformational Economics Commission of the Club of Rome, a recurring guest lecturer at the Victoria University of Wellington in New Zealand, and she works at Schneider Electric as Vice President of ESG Research. While she was doing her second master's, she wrote her thesis on the seminal Limits to Growth work that first came out in 1972. The paper she wrote as a result of her thesis went viral, and then she expanded it into a book called Five Insights for Avoiding Global Collapse. She's made this one freely available by download, and I have put a link in the show notes, because this is, I think, absolutely essential reading for anyone who's interested in how we get from where we are to where we need to be. The take-home message, as you will hear, is that if we all work together, there is still time to create the future that we want, which I hope by now is a fairly familiar idea to any of you who have listened to the podcast before. But this time we will really unpick the data and the concepts behind it with great humour and with the insight of someone who really has been at the coalface of the old system and has seen how to change it. So people of the podcast, please do welcome Gaia Harrington. Gaia, welcome to the Accidental Gods podcast and thank you for joining us from what must be a lovely sunny day in the US because someone's mowing grass somewhere not too far away from you. How are you and how are you in two separate ways? I'm good. Thank you for asking. How are you? Good. We have rain. Nobody would be mowing here, but we're very happy to have rain. So yeah, all is good. And I have spent a delightful morning in your work, reading your book, reading your paper. And generally, and this is blatant flattery, but it's true, marveling at your capacity to take incredibly complex concepts and render them in ways that anybody could understand regardless of whether they have a degree in econometrics or not. And until I got to know about you, I didn't even know econometrics was a thing. And I've done a master's in economy. So, um, so I'm, you, know, you clearly can get to grips with the underlying numbers and all of the data, but you can also express it in ways that I believe would make sense to everybody. And the fact that your book is free, open source, there for anyone to read, feels to me like one of those things that brings us to tipping points. So with that in mind, 
Could you give us the edited highlight of how this book came about, how you, Gaia, ended up being the person who wrote it? Yeah. Um, and first of all, um, thank you for having me. And that's also very good to hear because that was precisely the idea <laughs> when I put it out, when I wrote it. And then when I put it out very much with the intention that it should be freely available online for everybody. Uh, it was it was exactly that. It, it, it was broadening the audience to people who I believe are are curious and want to know more and have a have a sense that you know something's not working here, um, but aren't yet uh, fully educated on that for all sorts of uh, different kind of reasons. So um, that's that's good to hear. And we might look into the reasons at some point because I think there's a lot of obfuscation making sure people are not clear in these there's things. That. But let's there's go into yeah. how you got there. <laughs> yeah, um, and and it's interesting that you say that you have a background in economics, and then I I assume that you were only trained in neoclassical economics, as was I. No, no, no. Oh, okay. No, I did okay. I did the masters in regenerative economics at Schumacher. Ah, oh, very different. Uh, and I, I did it in my in my late. 50s. It wasn't my primary thing. I used to, I used to be a veterinary surgeon, ah, and then I became yes, a novelist. See. So I just did that as a a thing that one does. So yes, ah, okay. So that's very different. Yeah. See, I when I uh, studied econometrics, that was my my first masters. I was taught economics, and uh, it was really neoclassical economics. But they just call it economics, like there are no other schools. <laughs> exactly. And, uh, yes. <laughs> And that was when I was, you know, started when I was 18. So, and after that, you at the time, you just automatically would find yourself in ending up in the financial sector. Or they start grooming you very early there. And um, I lived, uh, I worked actually on the securitization. So those things that kind of instigated the financial crisis. Um, and so, and it was very interesting because at the time when I started there, I already had a very vague feeling of that this just doesn't seem, it seems like something is missing, but I had no idea what that could be. And then when the crisis hit, you know, everybody around me seemed so sure. So it was like, this must be me. And then once the crisis hit, I was like, oh, okay, it's, it was it was not necessarily me. And so... Well done. Uh, <laughs> and uh, I actually left. Uh, I'm not saying that I predicted the crisis. That that would be too much credit. But I, I did leave bef just before, a few months before it really hit. And uh, I started uh, a nonprofit for a little while that still exists today on... Um, conscious consumerism at the time still very much still very much um indoctrinated by the idea that we're all you know our individual choices uh in the end make all the difference and not yet quite aware of institutional and really systemic factors that came later right. um but then after the crisis i went back to the dutch central bank and i started analyzing things and in, in how different kind of risks would spread through the system how the entire financial system is so interconnected and how things spread through networks and that's when that really kind of started and once i started doing that I realized that we were missing a lot of risks that that um, neoclassical economics tells you somehow the market will absolutely end up pricing accurately. Um, and if not, the government will step in and, and fix it with the appropriate taxes. And I just I just thought if you analyze it, it's just not happening. 
And so yeah. that's manifestly not happening at any point and never likely to. That's the, the <laughs> astonishing thing is that in the face of evidence to the contrary, people still continue to assume that this is true. Anyway, yes, carry on. absolutely, no, absolutely. This is and this because that's what we're all taught. And it's just if you start really looking at the data, it's just it's so obviously not there. So yeah. uh, that's that's when I went back to get my second degree, uh, master's degree in sustainability. And uh, so I come from uh, sustainability with a really systemic lens, how ESNG, the environmental social governance factors, all very much interact. And, um, you know, as we all know, I think, well, maybe not all, but as I think there's an emer definitely an emerging awareness where people realize we cannot fix climate change without also uh, looking at the biodiversity crisis. We cannot fix uh, turn around these environmental issues without looking at that the transition must be just. So all the social issues like income and wealth and equality. Um, and then you get to governance issues like uh, corruption and um, and also the, the threats of new you know, social media and how false narratives spread and all this kind of thing. Yeah. So you get into so much stuff there. <laughs> um, yeah. You know, I, I'm, I'm married to uh, someone who, who works at the FBI in, in cyber. And when we just got together, we we thought that we were working on very separate areas. And then now we, we are astonished sometimes at how often our work now <laughs> intersects. <laughs> yeah, as we become more hyper-complex, as we reach the exponential function of that technological curve, the technological singularity begins to just hit vertical, then it seems to me that the hyper-complexity particularly of the social media and the incapacity to discern anything as real mm. is going to be is going to be quite an interesting social tipping point. Yes. Maybe we'll get to that later um, because we haven't got to the point. We will get to it later because that is definitely getting to where I ended up after, after, after all this, after the book. So that, that's going to be at the end. But then we're going to human nature, right? How we yes. are, our psychological makeup and all those things. So we'll leave that to, to later. Yeah. Yeah, dopamine versus serotonin and uh, oxytocin, exactly. that would be good. But in the meantime, <laughs> you did your second MA at Harvard. So you had moved from Dutch Central Bank regulation to the States. That's in, right. In between yes. the two. Yes. And that's so interesting because I am I was born and raised in the Netherlands. So that's a whole, my uh, point of view on, uh, on, for example, these issues like income and wealth inequality has obviously been shaped. And it's so interesting to come here. And I think in that sense, you can really see what, um, how the social cohesion, how, what a powerful thing that is and how devastating it is for society, absolutely crippling. If that's uh, if that's frayed through income and wealth right. inequality, because we we have that in the Netherlands, to be clear, we have that in Europe. Um, it's yeah. just more extreme in the U.S., and you just see um, how people are just the, the good people just not capable anymore of of seeing eye to eye because their realities are so completely different because of right. all these, these inequalities. Right, right, and they never had the social and cultural basis, I think, that Europe has. They didn't have a national health system. They didn't have, to the same extent, any kind of social safety net. I, I, they obviously have some, but it seems to me it's much bittier and it always has been. And once it starts to fray, the holes are much bigger. Is that fair or not? Uh, yes, but it, it did. it's not like it was 
all, it was always this stark. Okay. Uh, in the 70s, for example, they were very much closer to Europe. And in some ways, they could have easily gone in the direction of being, you know, things, capitalism, for example, it always, these things always look like it was inevitable, mm. uh, which is not the case. And yeah. in the in the 70s, for example, there was uh, the first, there was also a movement towards well-being and and people calling, for example, for universal basic income, that the first trials were actually funded by the U.S. government in the 70s. Right. Yeah, and a lot of yeah. people don't know that. And it almost was implemented, it was actually discussed because the, the pilots actually were, the results were pretty uh, encouraging. Um, and then, you know, it, it just went the other way. And then Reagan got elected. Yes, you know, exactly. If Carter got a second term. Yes, exactly. Then, you know, he was putting solar panels on top of the White House and Reagan was the one who came in and said, no, you can't have free school milk, it's socialist, we're not doing that. We can't have free childcare, it's socialist, Absolutely. we're not doing that. And, we could uh, have yeah, gone very yeah, differently because we labeled uh, it. Yeah, yeah. So, and I will say that the United <sighs> States, uh, in some ways, their social fabric was stronger. What one of the, I would I would say, looking back, and I'm not a historian, I should say that. So this is my personal opinion. But if you look back, you know, the Europe has never been. Uh, the United States of Europe. Okay. Uh, this, yeah. uh, I think the biggest strength of America has always been its unity. It had such a strong narrative that combined, that, that pulled everybody together. And you can see now that it's fraying. And ultimately, I think that's the main reason that it's, it's losing. It's still powerful, obviously, but it's, it's losing power in the world. Yeah. Interesting. Okay, let's unpick that later. Yes. However, we've got to, you're at Harvard doing a second MA in sustainability mm. and yes. you got to writing your paper. Tell us about yes. your paper. Yes, yeah. So uh, for my thesis, I, uh, I, I just stumbled during my coursework, I stumbled on the limits to growth. And that was a, 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 the first system dynamics model of the world. Um, and what what is that? What's the system dynamics model? Uh, so that's a, a formal model um, to uh, model complexity, basically. You mentioned complexity. In uh, again, to contrast it with my first masters in um, neoclassical economics, you the way you model is it's very there's a lot of implicit constancy assumed. So things are linear. You know, some you always increase with the same increments that your base increase. Um, the variables um, are most of them are exogenous anyway, right? There's only one on one or one on two uh, linear relationships typically. Uh, you assume constancy in errors and variance, and all those things are not necessarily the case in the real world. Never. So the case of the real world, I don't think. I mean, but. it's very useful for, you know, in statistics where you have like lab controlled environments maybe. Um, but in general, that's, that's I agree, it, it, it's certainly not the world, right? So our yeah. economy, our society and the world, uh, are, it's much more of a of a, a connection where, of, of a system, which means all parts interconnect and they can have sort of a meta behavior when they do that. So what does that mean? Things like long delays, there is feedback. There's definitely feedback. There's a response, but it's not immediate um, and it can build up. So th then what you get is, is tipping points. So it builds up, there's a delay, but all of a sudden there's the tipping point and then you get a huge disproportional, it seems, um, uh, effect. Uh, so exponential growth, exponential decay, all those things you see in, um, in the world all the time, but it's impossible to just uh, model with more uh, mainstream econometric 
um, modeling techniques. Uh, and so I when I saw that, I thought, also given my background, I'm like, oh, well, that's probably them. That might be something that we missed. <laughs> that's probably so. It came back to all those years when I was like in my early twenties, wondering how is it that we're not really gauging everything. I feel, and and I thought, okay, let's see if this would work better. Now, what turned out that this limits to growth model was created also in the seventies, like so many other things, uh, good ideas, and. Uh, and it showed it showed different scenarios for the world, and it wasn't meant to make predictions because, uh, in you know, it's a very different kind of mindset. System modelers understand that nothing is certain because when you have complexity, uh, what works constantly changes basically. Um, so it's not meant to make point predictions, but it's meant to gather a better understanding of the system that you are part of. And so you can do that with different scenarios. So they ran different scenarios. And one of them was based on historical um, averages only. And that was called the business as usual scenario. Now, in that scenario... Can I ask a quick question? Did they yeah. create the term business as usual? Because now it's used as a derogatory term by almost everybody I talk to. Was that <laughs> their phrase or was it hanging around in the 70s and they just picked it up? I do not know. I, I don't know. Yeah. Um, but they, but that's, that's what they call it. And I do imagine that at the time it was a more neutral term for sure. Yeah. Um, and they... Uh, so they, what happens in that scenario is that, um, so you have these different variables, all global, population, food production, industrial output, and then also pollution generation, um, welfare levels, uh, average, all of course average for, uh, for people, our ecological footprint, uh, services. So they had one variable for human services, which was education and healthcare. And so they, uh, so as you can see also, social factors, environmental factors, and economic factors. And um, these all interacted with one another. And um, in business as usual scenario, uh, you assume again that you continue on the way of the past, which is pursuing growth in industrial output. That's what we do in our current economic system. We, um, you know, and that's one of the authors of the Limits to Growth book was Donella Meadows. And she always said, you know, every system has a goal. And if you want to know the goal of that system, look at its behavior. Don't listen right. to what people say the goal is. <laughs> look right. at the behavior. And so if you look at the behavior of our current economic system, sometimes what is said is that it's meant to help uh, alleviate poverty and, uh, and, and uh, you know, uh, bring, distribute goods evenly uh, and optimally across society, for example. And there are people who believe that that has happened. I, I have spoke often to people who go, well, look, everybody's much better off. We're not living in mud huts with you know, one toilet per three streets and it's a hole in the ground. Yes, I, I would. Yeah, and and I would say you're you're looking at your own situation probably because some people really are good. They're they're they're. I, I'm. We were both well off, um, but if you look at the abject poverty, in, sure. in, in, I yes. mean, even and in the Europe, income inequality also. Yes, compared to what it was even when the first limits to growth was. Published. And of course, there is the cost at which this has come. So it's absolutely true that, for example, in Asia, yes, many people have been lifted out of poverty, but the. Um, and we and, and, and lifting people people out of poverty is absolutely imperative. Don't get me wrong, because that's real suffering. Um, but that's uh, kind of the point. It's, it doesn't seem to be possible. We still have 
large amounts of people in poverty today, also in the developed countries. Um, and uh, our ecological footprint in those countries is already above the earth's carrying capacity. So how are we going to lift all these people then out of poverty with business as usual? Um, if we're already kind of destroying the planet right now. So... Uh, so what were the other scenarios <laughs> beyond business as usual that they first looked at? Yes. So, well, so with this scenario, they showed that there was, uh, that it was not tenable, as I, as I just said, because of the, the environmental destruction. So in business as usual, there was a collapse pattern. A collapse pattern does not mean uh, that humanity would die out, but it did mean a steep decline from a previous peak. So as long as we kept pursuing industrial output growth, um, it, it would happen, but there would be consequences such as, um, uh, pollution and also uh, uh, resource scarcity. And so that would then lead to a collapse around present time. And so that was very interesting for me. And, and by collapse, they meant, as you said, not extinction, but a fall in human population. That there would, in fact, be quite a lot of people would die and the actual total population numbers would be, I mean, it looks like reduced by at least half if you look at the original graphs, or at least as you presented them in your paper, there would be a significant loss of human life. And then as a result of that, there would be less pollution, less resource extraction, less of everything else, and we would move to a slightly steadier state. Is that a fair reading of their business? That's yeah, that's correct. So yes, let's not, like you said, it's, it's not an extinction, but it's definitely uh, a decline from a previous peak in population and also human welfare levels. And that, that was kind of the conclusion of my research, but I will come back to that later, that, you know, this, there are limits to growth because we're on a finite planet. And so either you choose your own limits or they will be forced upon you. So in this case, they were, would be forced upon humanity. But as you said, there were other scenarios as well. So it wasn't, it was never a prediction of doom um, because it's, there were all also other scenarios. So it was more of a warning like, hey, the business as usual is no way forward because um, it, it, it looks like we can't keep growing forever, basically. We're doing that now, but it will not be able to continue. And um, it's also not necessary because if we, and that was the other scenario, there were many other scenarios, but there was one scenario called stabilized world scenario that was based on uh, different assumptions. So not just historical averages, but several um, significant uh, uh, deviations from, from past behavior, which was... Uh, a, a conscious limit to industrial output. So we would consciously put a cap on how much stuff we would create for each of us. And then the resources that that would open up would be shifted very deliberately to human services. So healthcare and education, and also towards um, increased efficiencies and uh, pollution abatement. So really what that means, what I concluded from that is that you make a conscious shift to, fo instead of focusing on growth, focus on human well-being, human welfare within ecological boundaries. And in that scenario, um, they would reach the, the, the welfare levels that we see currently and then maintain it throughout the rest of the century. So given those different scenarios, I was like, huh. And also, given that the peak was around present time in those scenarios, I thought, that's interesting. Let's see what came out of that. And then I did a, an online search and I couldn't really find 
um, any any data comparisons because we have a few decades worth of data by now, right? right. So there was one a person who did um, such a comparison, but it was a few years back. So the last one was in 2014. Um, and it was on an earlier version of the model. So I was like, well, let's just take the latest version of that model and then do it with present uh, data. And that's what I did. So I think we're saying that the original Limits to Growth team updated their model first 20 years after the original and then again in 2004. So that there were there were three sets. And if I've understood correctly, the first one their big limit to growth, they thought, was resources. And then by the second one, they'd realized that we had a lot more oil than they'd allowed for. But the limit to growth became pollution rather than resource fall off. Is that is that accurate? Yes. And that's actually exactly what I found. So, um, and, and this was just, uh, uh, I, I found that business as usual. So I did a day deck comparison against four different scenarios. One of them was business as usual. The second one was business as usual too, which was, which was uh, one, it was business as usual, except that it was assumed there were twice the amount of natural resources as in the first one. In the 70s, they just went with the existing estimates of expert of, of what is below the ground. And resources also include, of course, um, you know, uh, fossil fuels, also metals. It, it's, we don't know exactly what's there. We know it's finite, but we don't know exactly. And it, it has turned out to be more abundant than in the 70s, we thought. So they added that and they said, we'll just double it um, for argument's sake. And what you see there is that the collapse is not avoided. It is delayed by a couple of years and it even gets, uh, because we the resource constraint is relaxed, you can continue to grow for longer and then the decline is even steeper. Right. Right. So the peak's a bit higher, but the fall off happens faster. Yes. And it's because of, and this always happens in a closed system like the earth. Uh, you can, because that was, a, of course, a lot of criticism uh, that, that limits to growth got. And there was a lot. And one of the main one was, yeah, you underestimate the innovative capabilities of human beings, which I thought, by the way, this was created by MIT scientists, this model. So I always thought that that was, that was a bold statement to make to a couple... To go yeah, but to what that. it means is people want you to have underestimated. They want to believe it. We still exist in a world of magical thinking where people... Yes. But the magic now is technology. We're just going to somebody... I agree. You know, Zuckerberg yeah. or someone is going to wave a magic wand, God help us, Elon Musk, and... And in one bound, we're free of what are otherwise completely hard physical limits, which it's in, it's it's bonkers. But anyway, let's let's not go down that rabbit hole. I know. Hole, I, we I both agree. agree. It's the, the amount of faith people will give in technology is is astonishing to me. In, in um, the face and, of and, no evidence. <laughs> No, no, I, I'm not particularly impressed with what like people with, like Elon Musk are doing. Um, Good. I, I'm not sure where people give where the credit comes from, um, but yeah, uh, but it that's very true, and I, I I'm careful to point that out in the book too. Of course, to get to a sustainable society. Uh, technological innovation is going to be absolutely imperative. So that's part of the solution. But the idea that it's going to deliver us, because that's how it mm. feels. <laughs> People think that it's just going to yes. deliver us all. And we don't have to deliverance. do anything. Is, yeah. is ridiculous because technology is just a tool. And it will, in a system that is geared towards growth, the tools will typically just be geared towards that goal. Yes. So as long as the goal stays growth, uh, tools, the technology will be conducive to that. So we have to change the goal first. 
Brilliant. Yes. And let's move on to that. But just before we get there, I want to unpick a couple of things from the original set of Limits to Growth uh, publications, which is, it seems to me that they understood complexity. Donella Meadows created the list of the 12 levers of change. She is one of the great gods of complexity thinking, as far as I'm concerned. And Mm. she clearly understood the nature of feedback loops, positive feedback loops, balancing feedback loops. Mm. However, they made some very sweeping assumptions, it seems to me. They took they took very broad parameters and and half a dozen very broad parameters with which to map an unbelievably complex system. And the fact they got to where they got to is remarkable. And I'm not criticizing it. I'm just wondering when you came to look at it, did you consider taking alternative parameters or simply did you update what they had already used? I absolutely used what they had used and I only did a data comparison. And that's, for example, why I did not use, you mentioned earlier, oh, there's a 50%, looks like a 50% decline in population. I completely stayed away from that because you're right. This is a very general model. I I think they were very careful to point that out. This is not meant to make point predictions. So uh, I, I stay in very general terms because of that. It's really only meant to understand general dynamics. And so um, I'm not saying, well, uh, data aligns most closely to business as usual too, because that is what I found. Um, And so uh, we're going to see this and this decline because that's what happens in the scenario. But I do say in this scenario, the general dynamics are that we uh, would indicate that we're currently at our peak welfare levels and we can either go down or we can maintain it by a deliberate a change in course um, to a stabilized world scenario. Because what I found was we are least closely aligned with stabilized world. Uh, that is probably not that surprising uh, for anybody who pays attention. Um, but the positive thing there is that we are not that far away from it yet. So that's very interesting. Right. The scenarios st- have started to diverge right around now, which means they're fairly close together still. They show very different trajectories throughout the rest of the century. But if we, and we're not on the course for stabilized worlds, but with a deliberate course change, we could still align ourselves with it. And so my main conclusion of my research is that we are truly living in a now or never moment in history. And what we're doing in these next five to 10 years, that's the, that's the period, that's the window we have. <laughs> um, right. It will determine welfare levels of humanity for the rest of the century. If not for the rest of human existence, I would mm. I would suggest. I think mm-hmm. it, it's, yes. So what you've done, which I am amazed nobody else had done, but here we go, you've done it, it's brilliant, is to look at the models and update them with current figures. And what it seems like, if I've understood correctly, is that their original models were actually incredibly good at predicting where we might be going to go. And that other people who'd looked at them had had looked at that fact, but then not bothered to extrapolate them further. And what you've done is then to update existing models and see where they take us. And then you published your paper. And it seems to me the, the original Limits to Growth team got a lot of pushback from people who wanted to, and I'm using this in inverted commas, prove that they were wrong, because it didn't fit the ideology, the suggestion in the 70s that there could be, or usefully should be, limits to growth was anathema to a lot of people who were making themselves incredibly rich by 
pursuing the growth agenda. And now we're in 20, you did this in 2020, but we're now we're in 2023. And you seem still to be getting a similar quantity and quality of pushback from people who still don't understand systems thinking. And you had a brilliant anecdote in the book of your endeavour to explain systems thinking to some of your colleagues. Can you just tell us a little bit about that? And then let's explore how your updating took us forward. Yes, yes, I certainly can do that. I will say my when my research, when I published it in uh, the Journal of Industrial Ecology, it did go uh, viral a, li- a little bit. It did go around the world. So I would say that, yes, there was an incredible, completely agree, incredible amount of pushback that wasn't really, that was clearly based on the fact that most people just didn't want to hear the message uh, rather than a really thorough analysis of it. Because indeed, if you really wanted to discredit it, you could have done what I did and say, see, it doesn't align. Um, I found that it did align. So, uh, but but I don't think, I, uh, to my knowledge, none of the critics actually tried that. They they tried to do that with, this was a global model. And then there have been, um, there have been cases where they took one or two metals and said, see, these uh, these were substitutable and uh, they're not scarce yet. So this is nonsense. And I'm like, that's the, you must know that this is not scientific. <laughs> uh, so Also, so missing the point. I mean, honestly, if you that's that's probably the worst example of missing the point I've heard in a very long time, because that, that's like saying, OK, we could suck all the carbon dioxide out of the air, we'd fix everything. No, this isn't just a carbon dioxide problem. Mm-hmm. So if this isn't just a scarcity of copper problem, right. although that is yes. a problem. Yes, that is Anyway, <laughs> sorry. Yes. But, but not for all models. They're absolutely right. But then again, limits to growth authors never argued that. They just say, you know. Um, so it's it's very interesting how, it, how it, you know, the criticism, I, I think, wasn't that strong. Uh, but it seems that it also didn't need to be at the time because it went against the prevailing narrative. And I do think you're right. I still get a lot of the same questions about the, the innovation is one. Um, but uh, I think the fact that my research went viral was because there is definitely a growing sense amongst people that it, something is amiss with this entire economic system. So I will uh, say them that. But of course, we have our believers still. So I have an anecdote. I, Of course, I used to work in finance. So um, once I started, uh, went to the US to uh, consult at KPMG, you know, I also still sometimes consulted uh, with uh, banks and I I remember this this one banker that I was talking to about systems thinking and he just uh and I have I we only had just gotten to the introduction of where I explained oh you know how everything is connected and uh you know uh, what a system is and how it works why it's important to understand this I would think that after the global financial crisis that was pretty obvious I used a lot of the work of other people uh regulators and people in the financial sector by the way who do understand this and had mapped it out in networks etc um but he he was not one of those people, and he he just at some point very early on just st- stood up in the middle of my sentence, and j- just walked out of the room without a word. And then uh, my colleague went after him, and I had heard my colleague told me later that he had found him in the smoking room where he was smoking a cigarette, and he just said, "My body is a system. What does that even mean?" <laughs> <laughs> While smoking. 
<laughs> I think it's gorgeous. But it, so I think it, it goes that to... That triggered I, is bad, isn't it? Well, I think what it goes to... It, I, I was very surprised at the time because I was like, I don't think of anything I'm saying. How can you take it this personally? Because he seemed to be personally... He seemed yeah. distraught. And then I realized that there's so much other things that come with um, just systems thinking. And one of those things is if you are part of a system, you're not fully in control. So if you're in, used to this idea that you oh, make your own destiny and your own life, you're responsible for Thanks. your own actions, um, and and that you're only safe when you have control of the situation, basically, um, it is actually ex existentially uh, dis <laughs> uh, frightening to yeah, of course. For, for someone to say you are part of a system you may be yes. greatly impacted by things that you never had any control over because that is what it means to be part of a system and and you said in the book according to renowned international lawyer and foreign policy analyst Anne-Marie Slaughter who sounds really interesting and I'd love to talk to her young people and women tend to understand interconnectedness which is to say systems thinking faster than older, and I would suggest probably white and probably straight white men. Why do you think that is? Yes, um, I think so too. But the, the the race aspect she did not mention, so I, I didn't put it in a quote. But I would I would think that as well. I, I think uh, you know these these uh, men have been used to the illusion of control f for. Um, uh, well, they at least had it, <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and and women and uh, never had it. They always knew that, that they had their power was always through influence. And the younger generation also, of course, is much less powerful than the older generation. And so they understand and they grew up in a world of networks. So they understand this a lot better. That's probably why. Yeah, because you said at one point that the law of diminishing returns again, didn't sit with people, they didn't get it. And I think anyone who plays computer games understands diminishing returns because they're they're built in. You know, you use a spell one time on somebody and the next time it's half as effective and the next time it's quarter as effective and the next time it doesn't work at all. And you have a 15 minute gap in which that spell just doesn't work. And diminishing returns are built into what you do. So it's it's going to be part of your thinking. And it seemed to me you had a really interesting example of someone who'd run, I'm guessing, a computer simulation of Normcorp. Mm. And they had the men and the women, and they made a 3% difference in that the men were 3% more congratulated for success and the women were 3% more slated for failure. And by something like 20 cycles of that, 87% of the men on, of the people on the board were men. Did I get that right? Yes, that's so that's that's huge. that's right. That's a computer simulation, and the point of that is, of course, because uh, that uh, the the overall effects over time, the compounding effects, the nonlinear effects of very small differences initially at first, that compound to enormous inequalities. And I think that's a very important point. That's how systems work. And I think it, this was in terms of gender inequality. And it's very important because typically when you see a system, you see these enormous inequalities, you're like, um, and these inequalities are justified by suggesting that it's the natural order. Otherwise, it's completely, you can't justify yeah. it. It's just yeah. cruel and, and, and all those things. Um, 
so they've always throughout history been defended you know it's nothing different than the, the enormous inequalities during the European aristocrats you know and now this is natural order it's a god-given right to be king uh, that's the only way you can justify it it's the natural order of things and then you see that and you look at the system and you're like well I guess it must be the natural order because it's, it's everywhere and it's really only uh, it's not actually necessary to to start from uh, even just a, a big um, initial difference. If you just have, in this case, it was a 3% difference in perception. So it's not even that everybody is incredibly sexist in this mm. this simulation. They have yeah. just a slight perception of 3% giving more credit, 3% to men than women for performance. And then over time, that's how it ends up. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, interesting. And the other one, before we get back to the narrative, which is really important of your book, but there was the sugar place, I think. Sugarscape. Sugarscape. Yeah. And and what was interesting, I thought, with that was that they managed to create massive inequality, and you'll describe for us in a moment how, but they had created criteria that promoted it. And then it seemed to me, and I haven't read the original data, that they were then saying, this is the way the world works. And you posed an alternative question, which I imagine would have created a very different world. Do you want to I tell agree. us a little bit about that? Yeah, yeah, I, I agree. So th that's that's exactly right. I think Sugarscape was uh, is a famous um, a project uh, at the time where indeed it was, it was a, also a computer simulation, a similar setup. So you have all these different agents, they're called, and um, they have slight differences in abilities, but not that much. And they also they only have one thing that they eat, which is sugar. And they have one goal in life, which is collect as much sugar as they can. And what you see, is, and they have uh, and they have a certain visibility, and that differs. But uh, again, only small differences. So you start with a fairly egalitarian society, but what they saw is that just because of these small differences over time, the ones who are just a little bit better with their vision accumulate huge swaths of sugars that they could never hope to eat. So you just sit on piles of it. Um, <laughs> and other people are starving. Other and agents the other agents barely scrape by. Yeah. And so yeah. indeed, uh, an a conclusion that a lot of other uh, that 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 a lot of people drew from that was like, see, this is just how it goes. There, you know, this is just how societies behave. And um, indeed, what I then ask in my book is, is like, yeah, and this goes back to what we talked about earlier about the goal of the system. I'm like, yes, but the these agents have been told collect as much sugar as you can. What if we gave these agents a different goal? What if we ask them, find, go out, find the agent with the least sugar, give them just a little bit of yours. It would change the entire society. Okay. And I think that's a very valuable lesson um, also for how we um, organize our society. And of course, that's, again, goes back to this economic system that we talked about. If the pursuit is growth, you will pursue growth at all costs. Also, the environmental and the social ones that we're seeing today. If you change the goal of the economy towards contributing to human well-being directly, not through growth, directly. And if that comes with growth, it's fine. Uh, if it doesn't, it's fine too. Um, you know, but within ecological limits, um, we're going to have hugely different outcomes. Yes. So let's move on to that. But I have a question first. Has anybody run the Sugarscape with your new criteria? Because it, the, the software must exist. That would be so interesting just to see what it looked like. 
I have not done that. You know, maybe for Please a PhD, do. that's not a bad yeah. idea. Yeah, you know, it'd even be a master's because it can't be that hard. Just put in slightly, just put in one different sentence, one different line yes. in the code. Yes. And run it and see what happens. See what uh, and happens. then then the interesting masters for me would be, and then take that to all the people who saw the old one and went, yeah, that's just the way it is. Because I'm betting a lot of them were quite wealthy, mm. straight, white blokes. <laughs> yeah. And go, hey guys, look, we just changed the criteria and look what happens. And And then record them going into meltdown. <laughs> and offer them therapy and see how it happens. Because, yeah, because the reason I, I get to the end of your book and the end of a lot of people that I talk to, the reason we're in the mess we're in is that people don't want to know that solutions exist. It's not that the solutions don't exist. It's that they don't fit with how they map their world out. And they were born in the 50s, the middle of the last century. And so their world was on a very clear trajectory. You'd get very rich, hang on to the richness, play golf for the last 20 years of your life. And they have no interest in changing that. And you you're know, facing very, extinction. It's, it's a very interesting, people People love their narratives. We, we, we need it. We need it to stay sane. So that's not, you know, that's not a criticism. That's just how we are. You and I are the same. But I will tell you, my experience with speaking engagements is, is very interesting. When I talk about, I typically shy away from the word collapse because it's prone to misunderstanding. When you say collapse, people think about the end of your civilization. Um, so, but it's interesting. So I say something is like, we can't go on with this. It's going to halt one way or another, that sort of thing, which is also certainly true. It's a very interesting to observe the audience because there's such a, it, I would say it's a really, it's such a stark contrast between the younger generation and the older one. The older people, there are so many mixed emotions, um, right. but, um, you know, but there, there's, there's, there's a tinge of guilt there, but also uh, uh, likely, but annoyance and also, yes, but attitude, mm -hmm. so a, a tendency to go into denial. Um, there's a lot of stuff going on there. And, um, and I think that's because of all those things, because we need to believe that we're good people. And when you say that, and you have been a beneficiary of the system for your whole life, um, yes. you start to think, wait, have I done enough? And if not, am I not a good person? I feel I'm a good person. And I think they are a good person. They tried. And it's, it, it, it's also, that is the frustrating part of working in a system. Like, what could they have done? They, they would have, if they went too far, they would have placed themselves out of the system. So, um, it, you know, all these things, um, they feel it's a very mixed emotions that, and that sum up to them clearly being a little bit uncomfortable. <laughs> yeah. It's a very different situation with the younger generation. It's almost like they relax, which is interesting because the, the most of this fallout will still fall on them. But they already knew that. So it's almost like, finally, it, you know, I think a lot of the younger generation that are still plugged in, that are still switched on, that have not just tapped out, which I would, by the way, also understand, because um, it's a lot to take in. Um, they know what's going on. And, there's, and they live in almost this, this constant dichotomy of acting like everything is fine. Well, they know it's not because they're like, I don't even know yeah. what kind of future I have. So it's the, Greta Thunberg obviously expressed this very well. I'm like, why do you want me to go to school while you're taking away my future as I'm sitting there? Yeah. And I think the younger generation has this a lot. And when I talk about this, they're, for a moment, they, they don't have to do that mental work of living yeah. in that complete dichotomy. Yeah, of being gaslit. 
by the older generation mm. who are going, well, you just need to get a mortgage and get a car and get a good career and go get to an university education. and learn all these things. And, <laughs> yes. and, and they're going, but yeah. the world's not going to be there. And, yes. and then the older generation doesn't want to hear it. So Also in the US, it's completely unaffordable for most people. So. Oh, there's that too. Yeah. Well, and heading that way here. And if you are right, if everybody is right, we have reached peak welfare. Uh, Art Berman on a Nate Hagen's Great Simplification podcast a couple of weeks ago said that we'd reached peak oil. He has actually drilled into the numbers. And although oil commodities are still being sold and will be sold in greater numbers, the actual amount of oil in it is significantly less. And there are other than oil fractions, which are taking up more of the volume, but that they are all less efficient than burning actual oil. And so we have, as far as they're concerned, and, and this guy is the industry expert, hit peak oil. So, you know, the models were remarkably accurate. But let's then, with the time that we have left, and I'm aware I keep dragging you off down other rabbit holes because this book is so interesting. There's so many other rabbit holes. But you have your five insights. Hmm. And you have really, I think, quite clear suggestions of what we could do, that there is still a very narrow window of opportunity. How do we take it? And then for the end, I'd really like to know what you've learned since the book. Yes. But let's go for your insights yeah. first. Yes. And we can go off the fifth insight uh, through that. Uh, so the insight first one, and I lay them out through my book in different chapters. So we've already gone through uh, the first few. With insight one is we are connected. And acting like we are not has led us to the brink of collapse. Um, the second insight is growth is not a good goal. And in fact, it is the cause of society's problems. I think this is this is a very important thing because growth is still held up and certainly mm. was at the time as the solution. It yes. is not. It is actually the root cause. Insight three is we need to fundamentally change society's priorities if we want to avoid significant declines from our current levels of well-being. See how I don't use collapse? Um, and that because and that's and what that means is basically listen, we are not going to just innovate ourselves out of this with clean technology. We need that. That's absolutely imperative. But we we need to fundamentally change our priorities. Um, and Insight four is that the time is of the essence to make this change. We already talked about that. We have a very narrow window of opportunity and it's closing fast. Um, and such a transformation needs to happen at the most fundamental level. So hmm. we're out of time for tinkering on the margins. And so the fastest way to do that is to adopt a new narrative. Uh, we are, again, people have a natural uh, <laughs> tendency to not want to do that, but we can do that. And it's one of the fastest way to change uh, how we all work together. So um, it's a real transformation in that sense. And uh, by adopting a new narrative of who we are, and what world do we want to live in and which unique role we play in that world. And then inside five is the end of this growth pursuit does not mean the end of progress, quite the opposite. Mm. And that's also, um, uh, uh, th that's also a good segue into what I've been working on since, because I think that's one of the key things. When you talk about the end of growth, what people hear you say, I've learned this, <laughs> is I propose a permanent recession for everybody. <laughs> right. We're all going back to the Stone Age. We're going to yes. live in caves and, and yes. eat rotting goat. Gonna, yes. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Which is, of course, nonsense. We are at peak welfare levels right now. So what I'm saying is, let's keep this. We can maintain current levels and then... Uh, and then get, bring everybody else in on that level too. We cannot grow our current welfare levels. You and I cannot 
have it better in terms of material welfare, which is an important point, than we have it now. I think that's fine. This is totally fine. I think you and I are fine, materially speaking. I think, and that's what I've been working on since then, which is what does such a well-being economy look like? Oh, you grand woman. Right. <laughs> then tell us, what does yes. it look like? And of course, many others with me. So sure. um, what are these um, post-growth economics, different kind of streams are, are currently, and it's very it's a very exciting field of, okay, so if we don't, if the goal of the economy is no longer growth, what what is it? And, and the, the answer is obvious there, well-being within ecological limits. So that's obvious. Um, there is then the question of in the developed countries, how do we go there since we are already over our share of the ecological limits? That's where degrowth comes in. So how do we, because sh- we need a pathway back to below Earth carrying capacity. So that's a very different challenge actually than in the global South. They are still below right. Earth carrying capacity, but there's a lot more poverty. Yes. So there's, um, so this post-growth economics is also about uh, narrowing the gap significantly between the global North and South, which again I think is fine, um, because guess what? If you dive into well-being uh, research, and there's a lot of it. There are two misconceptions, I would say, and this, these are all things that I've found uh, since publishing my book. Um, two great misconceptions is first, if we let growth go, we will never be, no one will be profitable and it's the end of progress. Um, which because is profit and progress, of course, are, are in Exactly, late. which is, of course, nonsense. Um, and uh, because it's, you know, no one is anti-growth. This is the end of growth doesn't mean you're anti-growth. It's, it's very interesting how people immediately go through that. It's a little bit like if you're a feminist, you, you hate men. I'm like, hmm. that, that doesn't, no, we just don't like hate women. That's not the same. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, it, it's it's a very interesting misconception how people jump to that. But um, it's just, I think it's a ridiculous ultimate goal, growth. Uh, it's it's immature. Then everybody's been brought up in this sense where amassing more money is the thing that you do. And certainly in the UK, since the Romans arrived, it's been the thing that we did. So we've got 2000 years of history. How do we create for people a narrative which lets them wean themselves off that, not just a narrative, but a reality where going out to work at a job that you hate in order to earn enough money to buy the house that you barely see because you're spending your time in the job that you hate. How do we, I mean, nobody likes that. Yes, and that goes to my second point, well-being. Yes. Um, So the second misconception is, well, well well-being, that's just wishy-washy. And how can we possibly govern by such a wishy-washy measure? First of all, GDP is not an accurate measure, okay? So measuring economic activity is also quite hard. So Kuznets, who actually came up with GDP, also said, listen, this is not a good (laughs) measure for the economy and certainly not welfare. (laughs) And the world was like, "But nobody listened to that we'll go with it anyway. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, because it's rising and we like it and we can say numbers and they get go out in the newspapers and we look it. Yeah, and it gives the illusion of precision and mm, control and people love that too. But and um, a bunch of blokes like the idea that there's a number going up. It's, yes. it's bizarre, isn't it? I mean, fundamentally, it's just, you know, anyway, my number's bigger than your number has been a narrative for the yes. last 50 years. 
<laughs> well, that's that sort of thing. It, it it gives the illusion of you're like we know we, we got a grip on this, and um, I'm very good with numbers, but they they're never the full story. So you have to be very careful with that, and it's it's not a good governing measure. So um, again, it's and well-being is not wishy-washy. It's not more wishy-washy than uh, economic productivity, and um, there's actually some a lot of well-being research done already, and it, there had been for for decades as well. Um, one and this is not there's there's things that you can remark and you can criticize this too but uh, Maslow pyramids we, we, pyramid we were all very um, familiar with it and mm. it's still I think as a very basic framework um, as a starter it's a one-on-one introduction to well-being I think it's it's very useful um, and that's uh, I use that they're they're more sophisticated frameworks we have uh, Manfred uh, Max Ney for example um, yes. I, yes, you know that because you have yes. did regenerative eco- yes, <laughs> economics. Yes, everyone referred to Manfred Max Neef all the way through, so I will put that in the show notes. Yes. Yes. Uh, yeah, and because it really is a useful framework. And um, he also says, like um, Maslow, needs are actually universal. So it's actually not that wishy-washy at all. It only gets wishy-washy when we go to wants. And that's uh, the work of Manfred Maxneve as well. It's like we, our needs are all universal. How we satisfy them can vary wildly, and, and it, it does uh, across cultures. Uh, which is good news in many different ways. First of all, our needs can be satisfied in different ways. So we can choose the ways that are much less environmentally damaging. Or hopefully even regenerative, because that's the second thing. We actually have a lot of social needs as well. So the base of Maslow's pyramid is, of course, mostly physical. We need food, we need shelter, we need water. This is all true. Um, And if we don't have that met, we actually do indeed behave very selfishly. So we, we just are only focused on accumulating resources, which is necessary for survival and very understandable. That's just how we're wired. But we become actually quite different once our physiological needs are met, because then our needs, we still have needs, but they become social. Mm. And so then we go into this area of basically need for uh, connectedness. Um, And so, uh, you know, a a sense of community is very important to us, a sense of belonging, a sense that what we do has actual value for society. So you mentioned people just scraping by um, for a mortgage they can barely afford to uh, live in a house that they don't see a lot. Um, and then do a job that they hate. Because why do they hate it? Because they feel it adds no real value. Most people yeah. in the world are disengaged at work. And that's because we feel it's just tricks for money. And we actually do suffer because we have a social need to feel like what we do actually contributes to society. So the what that means is that basically this idea of saying, you know, uh, let's let's go do away with this growth pursuit. It actually doesn't just offer a lot of uh, of, of opportunity and well-being for people who are in poverty right now, uh, predominantly in the global south, but around the world. But it also offers a higher levels of well-being than most people in the developed world currently yeah. experience. And so it's it's really it's a it's an opportunity. It's not a capitulation to the the, the grim necessity because uh, otherwise we will end in collapse so it's like it, we are transforming society to somewhere where every something where practically everybody is happier than they are currently are and the avoided collapse is just a bonus brilliant okay with the last few minutes so this is absolutely blatant me 
gathering data. I, I write novels and I'm writing a novel that's trying to write us from where we are to where we need to be. Editing at the moment, novel two, novel one gets some of the politics moving. Novel two is going to be more of a uh, description of what it looks like. And I get very stuck on a set of questions to which I haven't yet got answers, and you may have them. And one of them is, CO2 is not our only pollutant, but it is one that we know over a certain amount of parts per million CO2 in the atmosphere, we are almost certainly going to hear hit climate tipping points where the collapse will be a collapse and it'll be the total biosphere. If we get to 10 degrees C, there is nothing living on the earth that we would consider useful. I mean, there'll be little tiny things in the bottom of the Marianas Trench, but that's about it. So we don't want to get to 10 degrees C. We'd like to not get much beyond two, given that 1.5 is now a fantasy. There is a certain amount of CO2 that we're probably going to have to create, a certain amount of fossil fuel we're going to have to burn to create the infrastructure that will get us over the next hump or see us through to the future that we would be proud to leave to our children, which is my ultimate end goal. There are also Paris Simon Michaud, who's been on this podcast. By the time this goes out, it'll be at least four times. There are very stringent material limits to how much stuff like particularly copper is one of his, his, one of his factoids is that we've mined an amount of copper, I think it's 800 billion tonnes, but I could be out by several orders of magnitude in the whole of human history. If we were to follow the EU, US, Green New Deal, turn everything into renewables, we would need to mine the same amount in the next 22 years. And guess what? That's not going to happen. So we've got very rigid limits on material flows. I don't yet see the path either politically or in terms of our greater global narrative to explain to the greater mass of people who still are largely in climate denial, as far as I can tell. I I had occasion to speak to someone who's in finance, which is not a world I encounter much, but I had a chat with him the other day and we were talking broadly about this and he looked at me as if I was speaking Greek and he said, yeah, but weaponizing the weather? I mean, that's just, you know, the Chinese are doing that. It's not really a thing, you know. And, you know, he is one of the masters of the universe who's working in the city and changing the money. And business as usual is not just a thing for him. It's the only possible option. And somehow we have to reach the people that he is otherwise talking to with a narrative of actually how the world looks. And it's probably not big cities. It's probably much more localized stuff, growing your food locally. But I'm not, I can see how that ends up. 30, 40 years down the line, I can't see how we get there. Can you see how we get there? Yes. Yeah, so there are, there are two aspects about that. Firstly, I would say um, things always seem inevitable um, or the way it just has to be until they change. Hmm. Um, again, you know, for, for a long time, it didn't look like capitalism was going to win, actually. And now it seems completely inevitable. It was always going to happen. You mean um, versus communism? Yes, and or socialism. Okay. Or yeah. socialism. But they were still an extractive process. It wouldn't have helped that much. It was just a different distribution of the products but the, of But the idea that it is the only way, right. um, you know, it really wasn't that obvious at the time. 
Um, and also, I'm not advocating for the end of capitalism. Capitalism has had many transformations itself throughout history, um, and it can do that again. Um, but it's, um, you know, maybe uh, we go to, if you even in the US, for example, again, the younger generation is now more positive about socialism than capitalism. So something is going to change. It's very clear that the current narrative cannot hold us together anymore. And we're all looking for new narratives. And of course, what is that narrative going to be? Well, people are working on that. Um, I think one of the things that I think is very exciting is that the, the recent um, European project on uh, pathways towards uh, post-growth uh, economics. So that was um, that was funded by the ERC with 10 million, almost 10 million euros so that Whoa. they could actually do stuff with that. Is that uh, Jason Hickel then in, in Barcelona? Yes, exactly. So it's wow. uh, the Environmental Science and Technology uh, uh, University of Barcelona and the University of Lausanne in Switzerland. So it's Jason Hickel uh, together with uh, Georgia Scales and, and Professor Julia Steinberger. So that's going to be very interesting to see. So it's you're, you're completely right. People are looking to pathways, um, but there's some real proper science being done on that. Um, in general, though, I would say these changes, uh, and people have been studying this, how systems change. And, um, and they have been. Humans have been... Uh, have there certainly have been collapses in history, uh, but there also have been uh, uh, situations where societies changed quite made, made these transformations and they completely changed their way. So it and is certainly usually possible. Been a bloody revolution at the start of it. Has uh, there not? No, 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 not always. Not always. Okay, Sometimes good, they can definitely yes. That. And so how these things happen. Um, is typically it's there's a and you talked about climate tipping points, but there are also social tipping points where people all of a sudden start to change dr their ways drastically, which is of course what we need. And how these happen is typically you need to get to a critical mass. So at first you have this emerging awareness that I think we can clearly we are clearly witnessing. Um, and at first there's these people are very quite disjoint from one another, but over time they start to connect more and more and it and it grows and it's but the majority is still not along yet typically when you get to only about and this can vary but about 25 percent it the process becomes self-reinforcing Right. And then the system changes, and only then does the majority come along. So you, this person that you're talking about, he might be in that majority that is not, you know, in the first 25%, because <laughs> he's just too much steeped into the narrative. But even people like him can adapt quite quickly once the overall narrative has changed. Okay. And then very briefly, in a couple of minutes, do you have a vision? Because you wrote quite a really beautiful narrative of the future in your book, but it's it's conceptual of how we behave and what our goals are, narrative of the future. If I were to say, Gaia, how do you think we'll be living in 2035? How does it look different if we've made all the good choices now, if it's heading us in the right direction? What does our world look like mm. in terms of going out for jobs, in terms of how we garner our food, in terms of what industry has changed to, those kinds of things? Do you have an idea of that? Well, um, I can say what I think it would look like in a well-being economy. That doesn't mean that I typically think it would be 20, 
35 would look like that. People often ask me, what do you think will happen? And I really don't know. We don't know. Okay. It is. I, I think this is a distinct possibility because I see um, people longing for it and I, I see a growing awareness of it. But I also see um, uh, there are clearly also different developments. People were really digging in their heels into this narrative of the old order. You see this very clearly in the US as well. If you see the enormous backlash um, and, you know, these people who are going completely anti-science they, and, and what they call anti-woke, um, just really doubling down, I would say tripling down on oppression. Um, yeah. You know, this is a, clearly a development as well that you cannot just discard as a bunch of uh, deplorables, I think. this and Because uh, they could have a tipping point too. If they end up at 25%, exactly. then the momentum um, is in their favour. But if we can create exactly. good narratives they have of guns. even they so, want. At least here, they have guns. So there's also that. <laughs> Grand, thanks. Uh, uh, <laughs> so uh, they have a lot more guns, I think, than the woke people. So if you talk about a revolution, I'm not sure that won't happen either. I think... I. Th- I think not, but I really couldn't say. So it's certainly possible we will see a world that has a lot more conflict in 2035 as well. I think we have to be realistic about that, where we are scrambling for resources, etc. Um, much more anti-immigration, as we will see a lot of climate refugees, all those things. <laughs> yes, so that's those possible, are possible too. But if we get, if you and I and Jason and the others get our narrative out there, and you know, even now there are things like uh, the Hollywood climate something or other, I can't remember it saying, but they're asking for film scripts. And so mm. so the, the media, there are arms of the media that are aware of this. So if we manage to get a vision that even the people with the guns look at and go, yeah, that would be good, actually, mm. I'd like that. Mm-hmm. Then we can help to bring the momentum to a regenerative space. Yes. So if we make all the good decisions now, what does a well-being economy? How is it? How is Gaia's life looking in twenty thirty-five? Two kids growing up, mm-hmm. where all good decisions have been made between now and then. Oh. And if you want to shift that forward to twenty fifty, that's fine. I, yeah, I don't mind. no, I love that. I love that narrative. Yes. Yeah, so if we do that, so we make the shift to a well-being economy. What you basically see is that um, we are much better off in well-being levels. So we see. Um, a simpler life in some ways. We still see some effects of climate change, but the burden is shared equally. I think that's very important. Um, and we see much more creative and regenerative solutions to definitely all the challenges that we will still have because biodiversity loss, climate change has already, the damage has already been done. And so, but the solutions are based on um together in with the community with others sharing the load and um, this creates a lot of social capital in society as well which enables us um, uh, to to work much more towards uh, things like innovation you know innovation is done in groups it's not one genius Leonardo da Vinci that's that's a very old way of thinking of innovating um, innovation is done in groups and so when you have a better social cohesion social capital you will get a lot more innovation and once of course you have an economy that's geared towards that I think we will see astonishing things that I can't even begin to imagine right now in terms of technology, but also how we just pull that together. Like we will have, um, you know, the um, the limits to growth, um, you know, that was commissioned. It was done by a group of MIT scientists, but it was commissioned by the Club of Rome, which still exists today. So that's a group of, of thinkers around the world and they still exist. And they brought out um, last year, 
an update in the sense or a follow-up book that's called Earth for All. And um, and I have contributed to that book as well, a small contribution. Yay. And um, and that's, that basically describes how to get there. But uh, one of the earlier, they now called it the five turnarounds, the things we need to do in the global system to make that transformation towards a well-being economy. Um, and earlier drafts of the book, I think they ultimately took it out, but I like that. They said, instead of a moonshot, let's now do an earth shot. Right. And that's, I think, the moonshot. It's incredible that we did that. If you looked at the US, um, and this was very much government-led, by the way, because that's also part of my um, vision for the future. We need a strong state to do that. Not authoritarian. A lot of people equate that. Yeah, um, no, but no. a state that Healthy, has... Vigorous. Yes. Uh, a state that has authority because it has trusts and it has credibility from its citizens. Yeah. And um, that can really... We need to just... Leaving the things to the market basically means ah, we're just going to let things be as they are with the current inequalities and, and power differences in place. Um, what you need is a strong government to really very deliberately um, govern towards these new goals of human well-being. So that, and that, I would call, is an, is an earth shot. Yay. Yay. And in the UK... Um the heir to the throne is running runs an Earthshot prize every year. I think it's a million pounds is the first prize. But the more important thing is I think the top seven on the shortlist get a lot of space and time to develop their ideas. So and based exactly on that idea that this yes. you know, sending rockets to Mars might not be the highest priority just at the moment. No. Might be a better yeah. idea to see if we could manage all life on Earth. Gaia, we've run out of time. That was so wonderful. Thank you so much. Is there anything you wanted to say as a last thing? I think everything you said the last half hour has been perfect for people, but anything that you wanted to say to listeners in terms of what they could be doing to help mm. spread the word. Yeah, what what they could be doing. You know, um, the the thing the first frustrating part about working in a system is that you're never really done uh and and you're not always in control typically you are not but the good thing is that you're never working alone so i do think that you know remember that whatever you do in a system makes a difference we're still finding out how whales are actually just by swimming through the ocean are are helping could combat climate change. It's astonishing. So, you know, there's no there's no need to ever really feel like you're working alone. Uh, definitely take your rests when you need it, um, but you're never really working alone. And everything you do, uh, no matter how small it may seem sometimes in and of itself, um, everything you do matters because you, you never know how it reverberates through the system. Brilliant and beautiful. Guy Harrington, thank you so much for coming on to the Accidental Gods podcast and good luck with your second book, which I'm sure must be on its way. Thank you for having me. And that's it for another week. Enormous thanks to Gaia for taking time out of her schedule and for the humour and clarity of her thinking. She's one of those people who feels to me infinitely on top of everything that she does. She's got the capacity to take incredibly complicated and complex ideas and render them comprehensible to all of us. I genuinely recommend her book. It's beautifully written and it's got a flowing style that carries you from one idea to the next in the way that makes them feel obvious. And I think they are obvious, but it takes a lot of skill 
to bring that together. So head down to the show notes, download it, give it a read. It's it's not hugely long. And if you don't like lots of graphs and numbers, you can probably sweep over the econometric bits in the middle. But the bits on either side, which is to say most of the book, are just really inspiring. I am definitely going to recommend this as a source text on the Regenerative Economics Masters at Schumacher, but it's not just for economists, for everybody out there. If you can get your head around the ideas here, the ways that the old system props itself up and the ways that the new system is coming into being and how systems really interact with each other, there's some of the most elegantly beautiful descriptions of systems thinking in this book that I have ever read. And I've been looking at systems thinking for the last four or five years. So so really, just download it and read it from end to end. That'll do fine. And in the meantime, we will be back next week with another conversation. Thank you to Caro C for the production and the music at the head and foot, to Faith Tillery for the website and the search function. I still think that's a wonderful thing. And all the conversations that keep us moving. Thank you to Anne Thomas for the transcripts. And as ever, an enormous thanks to you for listening. If you know of anybody else who wants to get their head around the limits to growth and how we might move forward, then please do send them this link. And that's it for now. See you next week. Thank you. And goodbye.